0: The Northwest lost a paragon of black activism in Eastern Washington. Sandy Williams was the editor of the Black Lens, a monthly African-American newspaper in Spokane. She was a guest last season on Traverse Talks and we wanna share again this interview with her because everyone should hear from Sandy about her life experience being black in Eastern Washington, why she worked so hard to start the Black Lens newspaper and to lift up black voices. Let's push forward her work this is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. Alright, we're gonna have a conversation with each other, and I just wanna tell you, I feel like you are way out of my league. <laughs> oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you have done so much for the community, for African-Americans in Spokane, for Washington State. You were invited by the governor to be a part of discussions on the board. I mean, first of all, I want to know, what was it like venturing into politics on that level?
1: Uh, I don't like politics at all. But the reason that I decided to take that on, frankly, was because I was in a meeting with some community members, older community members, and they were really frustrated. They were expressing concerns, and they were talking about how they had tried to get people to listen to them, and nobody was listening to them. And I just felt like they needed some, somebody to advocate on their behalf, and so what I realized was, you know, we could go into a room and nobody pay you any attention, but if you put that governor's seal behind your name, if I send an email to somebody... Just as me, then they don't care. But if I send an email to somebody with the governor's seal attached to it, then all of a sudden doors open. Yeah. That's why I decided to do it was so that I could use the power of that office to advocate on behalf of people in the community that didn't have anybody speaking up for them. So that was specifically why. But I still hate politics. I still hate the political system. I don't think it's really invested in helping people much. Um, It's really invested in protecting the status quo. I mean, either side of the spectrum doesn't really matter. So I don't care for it much, but in that instance, it helped me be able to um, make some things happen
0: that I don't think would have happened otherwise. What is the difference between activism and being political?
1: Um, Well, I'm not talking about political, because Politics is the system, but being political, being a political activist, everything that I do is political. Even when I try not to be (laughs) political, I'm political. So I was like, at this point, I don't even try not to be political. It's like, I don't pretend that I'm not political because it's all political.
0: Oh, Sandy, please forgive me if I say anything that may come off really terribly. I'm honestly curious about you and your life so sure. being a black woman is that automatically when you walk into a room a political statement
1: yes yes it is it is and there you know and it's interesting because as i've gotten older i talk less you know i have a desire to talk less and don't always want to be the one in the room that's going, you know, okay, you didn't talk about this or you know, you didn't talk about that. And it's gotten old to do that. And so so I even go into rooms now where I don't say anything and then they'll go, so Sandy, (laughs) what do you think about this issue? You know, and it's just like I'm just listening. Can I just sit here? As a black woman and just (laughs) listen and not have anything to say about something. And so. No, Sandy, as a black woman, you have to solve all of our problems. Exactly. So anyway, so yeah, it feels like just breathing is political, you know. (sighs) That's exhausting. It is. And you don't really get the luxury of just being like other people just get to be. And that is exhausting.
0: Are there places where you can just be in Spokane? In
1: my house? (laughs) In my house Um, I have a very small group of people um, That I connect with And when we are amongst ourselves Away from other folks Then that feels good Mm. But my daughter just left town My daughter and her fiance So family, close friends But it really is about being away from folks Away from stuff In a space where you can just sort of Kind of just let your guard down Because it's about always being on guard Never knowing at what point I'm going to have to be in a position of having to correct something or, you know, advocate Mm -hmm. on behalf of something. So to be in a space where that doesn't have to happen is very rare, but really important. And I do have I have created spaces here with people that I'm connected to where I get to do that. And. And that's important. And I tell people when folks come to Spokane, particularly people of color that I talk to, black people, like, how do you survive Spokane? Well, you better find some people that are safe for you Mm. and develop those relationships and keep them close because that's really the only way you make it here.
0: Wow. Sandy, I read The Black Lens, a newspaper that you write and have been the force behind for many years. And I just read recently that you got a grant so you could pay a part time person. I mean, yay. <laughs> yay! feeding the beast of media is exhausting in itself. Yeah. But you have shouldered The Black Lens. How do you find the energy to keep doing it?
1: You know, every month I'm about to quit. Um, (laughs) Every deadline, you know, I'm ready to quit and then I'll, you know, I'll talk to my daughter and she'll say, well, you said that last month, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. So she just kind of blows me off. But, you know, I think it is exhausting, but it's amazing at the same time. You know, I will be tired of it and then I'll bump into somebody who read something And it was important to them or somebody who submitted something that was important to them that they wanted included, like wanted me to publish it. And that was important to them, you know. And so when those moments happen, it's like that's and they typically happen just when I need them to Uh. like, just at the point where I'm like, eh, you know, and then somebody will show up and or I'll get a phone call or I'll get an email or something like that. And so that's that's what keeps me going. It's really important. Um, It's not important because I'm doing it it's important because the voice is important and the community is important. And, and I believe that because of its presence, that things have changed here a little bit, you know, people have felt a little bit more emboldened, um, a little bit more impassioned to speak up. And that is important. And that's the part that matters the most.
0: Yeah. Well, in one uh, of the papers, you wrote about a poem, an autobiography of inclusion in five not so easy chapters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was incredibly enlightening for me to read. And as I read it, I'm just going to give you know, I'm just going to read a couple of the chapters. That, and and okay. it's not a long poem, but it is significant. Chapter one I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find the way out. Then it progressively goes until like chapter four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down a different street. I mean, the progression of this poem is essentially the experience of blacks in Spokane. And then here you say, I share this poem because I feel Spokane is stuck in chapter one, which is there's a hole in the street. We fall in. We can't get out. It's not my fault. And it almost, it's just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. But you <laughs> want and hope to be in chapter five. Yep. Walk down a different street. And yep. the Black Lens is helping Spokane, as wide as it is, to try to acknowledge there are different streets to walk down. Yeah, I hope so. That's the intention, but a lot of white folks are stuck in Chapter One. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that point, you know, that that poem for me that was that was gifted to me by a friend decades ago. It really changed my life. That's why I use it. I take it out. Like sometimes I'll go out to the to Airway Heights Correctional mm-hmm. Facility, and I've taken that poem out there and talked to the guys out there. I said, "Look, this is the poem that changed my life. If you really pay attention to this thing." It changes things. And so because you kind of go, oh, yeah, dang, same street, same street. And I think that's what happened for me with all of the activism work I was doing. I mean, I've been doing activism work since I was a teenager. And, you know, at almost 60, I'll be 60 years old this year. Hmm. And it's like all of a sudden I started realizing These are the same conversations, different people, same conversations going round and around and around. It's like, why am I so frustrated? And I just decided, and this was where the Maxi Center came from, Carl Maxi Center, was I just decided to pivot. It's like, I don't want this street anymore. I don't want these conversations anymore. I don't want to beg people for stuff anymore. I don't want to try to convince anybody of anything anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. That's the same street. So I'm going to step over here. Yeah. Sure and walk over here and so when we decided to do that it was like it just changed like people felt lighter Mm. I felt lighter and we all felt lighter because the focus was at last on something that felt like it mattered and that was substantive and that was actually going to make a difference and so 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 it really has I mean it was life-changing for me that poem and so that's why I offered to share it and then I included the one that I wrote about the autobiography of 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 inclusion because people always ask me about inclusion you know and it's sort of a same thing you know we're all the same we're all the same we're all the same we're all the same well no we're not no (laughs) we're not all the same and if you can't ever get there then you're wasting my time so let's have that conversation at some point you know so yeah that's that i've gotten a lot of feedback about that more than i expected to
0: But that makes me happy. People are paying attention. Because it's incredibly powerful poem, and you shared that power. And I just want to read your chapter five. Yes, there are differences, lots of them. It's important that I notice them, honor them, learn about them, seek them out, and celebrate them. Because we are not all the same. I recognize that our differences were actually strength, and I think that is exciting. Yeah. And not fearful, because we're afraid. We're taught in this
1: country to be afraid of differences. That difference is scary.
0: Why are we like
1: that, Sandy? You know, it's I think it's power. I mean, I think everything traces back to power. Who's got power differences? Um, If you can get folks to shy away from that, which doesn't feed into the traditional sort of system, Mm. then you prevent anything from disrupting that system. You know, that's what I think. That's just my personal opinion. But but little kids celebrate differences. Mm-hmm. They do. It's when we get older that we sort of start backing away from that. So that's the part, you know, and and it's messy, you know, differences celebrating and embracing. It's messy. And so if you if you really are trying to embrace equity and diversity and all that kind of stuff, and what you're doing is not messy, you're not doing it right. Mm. You know, this whole comfortable, everybody's gotta stay comfortable
0: stuff is not truthful. No, it's, yeah, it's so fake. It is. We had a, a man recently, a paraplegic, who helped lay the groundwork for the ADA, mm-hmm. and his one of his quotes was, it, when you're comfortable, you're not doing it right. Exactly. And I would say, if you're comfortable, you're not doing anything, <laughs>
1: you know, because you can't be doing this work and have it be comfortable. It just can't be. And even I am not comfortable in some of the situations I get into, and I have been doing this for decades, and then something comes up into your face and like, oops, you know hadn't seen that hadn't noticed that you know if you're not experiencing anything that's that you just noticed or that is ruffling your feathers or I'm um, giving you a perspective that wasn't yours if you're not encountering any of that stuff then you're really not doing anything and so so that's the part is that people are uncomfortable with discomfort you know yeah and so we have this sort of Um, We have all these platitudes and nicenesses and stuff. And I just I just have grown too old for that. You know, (laughs) my daughter says I'm cranky. She says, you're cranky, mom. And I was like, yeah, I am. I just am really tired of that. I just I want the real stuff, you know, the real stuff where you
0: get in there and you, you know, you just kind of, you know, slosh around in it. Well, being in that with you is giving people permission to screw up with each other. Yes, exactly. But then still like, I like you and honor you and respect you. We're going to mess up together. Exactly. And be open to being, (laughs) I guess, being, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes.
1: Oh my gosh. And that's the part, and I can see, I can tell... If somebody's heart is right, you can feel that. And if Mm. they screw up, but their heart is good, then I'm good with that. One of the things that I'm uncomfortable with right now is there's, and this is not all people, some people, they're weaponizing equity. So I'll say that, they're weaponizing it. And so, and I'm not talking about folks who don't care about people, because there are system people that are specifically trying to maintain systems. And I'm not talking about those people. Okay. But there are people, good-hearted people who have not had experiences that would educate them about things right and so they get in there and their intentions are good and they screw up and they make mistakes and so and folks pounce on them, Mm. you know, they pounce on them, kind of like this thing that just happened with Cher, where she made this comment about George Floyd and just got attacked for it. Now I don't know Cher personally, but I know Cher's history and my perception of her is that she's been a person who's spoken up on issues frequently. So because of that history, I would I personally would be willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, you know, maybe you didn't say that the best way or, you know, maybe you could have rephrased it differently, but certainly wouldn't have attacked her. Hmm. Um, And I see some of that happening. And I don't think that's that's better. I think that's part of the same system you know i think that's part of the same thing it's just sort of a different facet of it it's a similar spirit exactly
0: and then would this be cancel culture
1: People call it cancel culture. I don't like that term because that's also being used as a weapon, as a weapon to dismiss what are valid concerns um, and valid issues. And I think they're intentionally doing that. Yes. um, And came up with this coined phrase or whatnot so that people who don't even know what they're talking about just sort of throw that around. So I don't like the term, but I do think there are instances where folks whose intentions are good have been slammed by people who are doing the exact same thing that they're supposed to be
0: fighting against. (laughs) And that bothers me. So. You know, the, the hypocrisy is definitely out there. Yes. I'm just wondering, because you have an extensive background in spirituality. You had a podcast for years that really dove into some really interesting topics. Yeah. How about the word grace? What if we allowed some grace? Yeah. Yes. And I think it's
1: about I think if you if people really acknowledge that we all have biases, we are all inadvertently or on purpose doing things that that injure and impact other people. Mm. If we all can just own our own stuff, I think then you get to grace. It's like so if I know that I'm doing it, too, um, even though I've been doing this work for decades, I still screw up sometimes. And if I'm able to own that, then I own that other people can do the same thing and still be a good person because I consider myself a good person and I screw up. So if I can be a good person and screw up, they can be a good person and screw up and we can find some middle ground in there. Yeah. So that's what I see grace as that doesn't let systems off the hook. So that I just always throw that in there because you're, you're looking at stuff both from an individual perspective. So that's an individual perspective. I can work with individuals, but but systems is a whole different thing, mm-hmm. and systems need to be dismantled. <laughs> the <laughs> systems that are oppressing people need to be dismantled. And if you're a person who are who is trying to perpetuate those systems and hold them in place, that's a whole different conversation right. versus us being two individuals trying to work through some stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And okay. on the individual level, I always seem to think that growth is painful and... I feel, I always say Americans, but I assume it's probably all humans try to avoid pain. Yes. But it is a good pain. It's that pain where you're exercising to get stronger. Mm -hmm. And so you're in pain, but it's better for you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And exposing yourself to different ways of thinking and being. Um, When I was young, I remember... You know, I grew up very Judeo-Christian, so they're very their rules, mm-hmm. and, and the world was very black and white. But there came a time in my life where I noticed more grays, and mm-hmm. it actually hurt. It hurt yeah. my brain. Yeah, and until I was like, you know. The, the, There are people halfway across this world who don't even know this religion. Yes. And they're doing just fine. And they're doing just fine. Exactly. That was one of the, you know, I did that show,
1: Revolutionary Spirituality, was super duper fun to do that show. I only stopped because I was exhausted. It was so much work. <laughs> to, do it, to do it well yeah. was a lot of work, and I had a full-time job at the time. So to try to do that around that was hard. But what I learned from that experience was how similar say, the good parts of religion,
0: right.
1: <laughs> um, how similar they are. How similar they are it was really fascinating and even the ones that i thought were so strikingly different really weren't not at their core anyway right golden rule yeah and i asked a guy one time he was he actually was and it was fun because i would just call people out of the blue you know somebody who's (laughs) a national author and you know would you come on my little show and most of them said yes but this guy was a national author And he had written a book, uh, something about um, religions, different religions, which I thought was fascinating because he identified as as Hindu, I think, Ah. if I remember right, because it's been a long time. But I asked him that. I said, so you wrote this book that talked about the similarities between religions, so why do you identify as one? Like, why? I'm curious about that. And so he said, well, because he said you can be five foot deep and 50 feet wide or you can be 50 feet deep. And so, you know what I mean so you can go down deep on one religion And sort of focus there, or you can be shallow on many religions and and stretch wide. And he just said, it just worked better for me to go deep on one. So it doesn't mean I discount any of the other ones. He just said, that's just what worked for me. And I just found that fascinating. So it was really just about what worked for him. He said, so I just believe people need to find whatever it is that works for them. And, you know, and this was sort of a theological guy. And so I expected it to be something more profound than that but that actually was pretty profound it's just you find what works for you because fundamentally he felt like they
0: were all the same Mm. but don't tell them that
1: Well, well, that's power too. It's all power. Everything's really comes back to power because it really is about. Um, and I talked to a Christian person who told me because I one of my favorite questions that I asked people was, um, "What was your dark night of the soul?" And so I had this person tell me that their dark night of, of the soul was they went to because um, a Christian person went to theology school, and <laughs> and in school realized that everything they have been taught in church up to that point was not true Oh, was fundamentally not true and how hard was that and I said well then what do you do with that You know, what do you do with that information then? Because you have two choices. What they tried to get folks to do and what this person did for a short period of time was sort of ignore the fact that you just realized that all the stuff that you just (laughs) learned wasn't true. And you go into a church and you teach people that which you know is not true. Mm. How deep is that? Or you let it go and you go down a different path. And so this person tried to do the former for a while, went into a church, and all that, and then it just ate away at their soul until they finally had to release that and go a different path. But that was fascinating. That was a really, really fascinating conversation. And so so that's what religions do, is that those who have power know that. They know that a good chunk of that information is not accurate. They know it, but it doesn't matter because getting people to believe that perpetuates the power system. So that's why they do it. Yeah. You know, fascinating stuff. So it all comes back to the same thing. So like every area that I go in, that I focused in over the years in terms of activism around different issues, it eventually seems like it traces back to the same thing all the time. Power. Power. Power and privilege.
0: Power and privilege. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to a pre-recorded interview with Sandy Williams, the editor and creator of The Black Lens, the African-American newspaper in Spokane. Williams died recently. This interview was recorded in 2021. Hey, so I wanted to ask you about the Carl Maxey Center. Mm -hmm. I had heard about Carl Maxey before. Mm -hmm. Spokane man, lawyer, orphanage. I mean, can Mm -hmm. you give a brief overview of Carl Maxey and why you chose the name Mm -hmm. for the center?
1: Yeah, well, Carl, um, I actually, to be honest, don't think that the black community still has survived. I won't say survived, but hasn't quite Recovered, that's the word I was trying to find. I don't think the black community in Spokane still has recovered from Carl's death. Carl was more than an attorney. He was sort of the soul of our community, I believe. Um, He was a champion for um, racial and social justice. He was a larger than life figure. He was the first attorney that graduated from Gonzaga Law School in Spokane and could have done a lot with that. And what he chose to do is stay here and help black people. He, he helped everybody, but in particular, he helped black people. And so he was, he was foundational for this community um, in terms of the work that he did, the impact that he made on lives here. And I was young at the time, so I knew of him, but I didn't know him. I um, wish I had, had the opportunity to meet him. I was gone. I had moved by the time he passed away. So when we were deciding to do a center, initially what we were planning to do was to create a small nonprofit, supposed to be a small thing. And it was really just going to support the work that the Black Lens was doing in Spokane. So in addition to publishing the paper, I was doing events and, and speakers and that kind of stuff. And so it was hard to do that and the paper. And so initially, we were going to put a nonprofit in place that was going to take over some of those community things and then let the paper be the paper. So the nonprofit initially was called Friends of the Black Lands, kind of like they have Friends of the Symphony or something like that. So that was our initial idea. Five of us sitting in, in my backyard eating barbecue, right? And so pretty quick, I mean, almost in the blink of an eye, we figured out that that was not big enough. Like the need was so much bigger than that. There was a building that was vacant in the neighborhood, the area of East Central that was has a significance for black people. And what we figured out was missing was a place like you need to have a space. You need to have a, like you were asking earlier about where do you go to be safe? there's not a lot of that here and so we figured that we needed that. We need to create a place that's specifically safe for black people. It's not that other people can't come, but the intention of it is to be a safe space for black people. So we set out on that journey to do that and and so we were trying to figure out what do we call this place, you know, Um, and so the traditional names always come up that black people have of famous black people and you know that kind of stuff. So I was talking to a friend of mine who lives back east and so I was telling her, we're trying to figure out what to name this, this center. And she said, well, you know, she said, you know, I really love uh, Martin Luther King and, you know, and, and Malcolm X, X and, you know, and, and our other sort of famous black people that things are always named after. She said, I really love them. She said, but they didn't live in Spokane. She said, don't you have somebody in Spokane that embodies what you all are trying to do? And it was just like, it was like a lightning bolt. It was like, of course we do. Like, of course we do. And it was just that fast. It was instant. As soon as she said that Carl's name came up, everybody was in agreement immediately. Um, We talked to the family. And so it was like, there was never another option when Mm -hmm. she said that. Because it's true. It feels like um, we're sort of picking back up his work. That's what it feels like. Like he would have been all over the stuff that we're doing. So I hope it honors his legacy. That's our hope is that we're honoring Carl's legacy, that we're kind of picking back up the mantle, if you will, and, um, taking it forward into the next generation to do some more of the work that he started. So that's, that's our intention.
0: Nice. So there's like, 5,000 as of 2019 5,000 black people in Spokane is there supposedly there's that many there's that many there's that many yeah wow yeah, yeah
1: yeah
0: well that was one of the stats that I've pulled up on Google but I was Uh uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry for it is funny because east of the Cascades you don't see many brown and black people and if you do they're really, you know, they're like over there, you go over there. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm laughing too, because even like the Asian stores, they're relegated, relegated. I think that's the right word over there. Yes. Put, put them over there. Yes. Um, yes. And I guess I giggle because it's just sometimes so sad and painful, but. Yeah. And it
1: really hasn't changed over time. You know, if you look statistically at the percentage of the population of Spokane over the years, it's really sat right there at just under 2%. <sighs> And it's that now. Our challenge is with retention. Um, so we get people here, they stay for a little while, they get frustrated, and they leave. And so we're having a really hard time keeping people here. So that's one of the things that we're working on. I mean, I did it. I left immediately when I graduated from college. I tell people I was reaching out for my diploma with one hand, and I was packing my suitcase with the other because I wanted out of here. My brother did the same thing. My daughter, who was born in Spokane, did the same thing. So we're losing talented, smart, talented people, black people, who have option to be anywhere else, leave immediately, um, most of them. And so um, that's a problem, and we have to figure out how to address that.
0: And I don't want to burden you too much with this question, because I know it could be very complicated. Mm-hmm. Is it because there aren't many safe places for you to be black in Spokane? Mm-hmm. The, maybe the aggressiveness of authorities being ignored, all these things combined with where are your stores, where are your barbershops? Well, I mean, part of it is you can't get a job.
1: I mean, it's, it's fundamentally down to that. You have really smart, bright, talented black people graduating from here and they can't get a job competitive to where they can get somewhere else, you know? So that's a big part of it. I think, I think the other part would come You know, like it would be great to have stores and shops and all that kind of stuff. I think people could put up with that if they were getting paid well. Mm. And so it's hard to crack those. Again, while I go with systems, you know, we have we have systems in Spokane who hire folks that look and act like them. And so if you're in a city that's 90 percent white, most of the people that look and act like the folks who are in positions of power are white. And so to be able to crack that is really hard. And I and I did a couple of stories with folks who've come back here, like I'll say younger because they're younger relative to me, but sort of older, younger adults. But two of the stories that I talked about, these are business owners. Both of them talked about having left here because they couldn't find work here. And they eventually came back because they were older or their family was here or whatever, which is what I did. You know, Mm -hmm. I came back because my family was here, but I left before opportunities. Like you want opportunities and also a part of it is you want more diversity. It's like, you know, it gets old. Like sometimes, you know, know, it's like when I moved back here this last time, you know, I'm just standing there and I had just come back from Los Angeles. So very diverse. And I'm standing in the bank and I just kind of started glancing around and like, every single person in the bank was white so the people behind the desk the people behind the counters the people in the offices everybody in line i even looked through the window to the drive through and everybody in every car. So everybody. <laughs> and, you know, that starts to weigh... And they're nice people. So it's not a criticism of... I mean, Spokane has some really nice folks. They wave at you and they let you cut through in, in traffic. You know, really polite, kind folks. So it's not, a, it's not about that. But it starts to weigh on you after a while. And my daughter moved to Atlanta to go to college. So I helped her move there. And... Oh my goodness, (laughs) what a different experience. And it's like you don't even realize it until you're experiencing it. So here we are, the pizza delivery guy was black. The guy that came in and hooked up the cable was black. You know, the mailman was black. We went to the drive-thru and the drive-thru people were black. You know, we went to the mall, the security guards. black. So it's like everybody. And what a different experience that was. And we were kind of like going, wow. This feels kind of cool. Yeah. you know, And so one of the reasons that people leave, in addition to not being able to find work, but the other piece of it is you just want to be in a position where you don't
0: stick out all the time. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Like, I don't want
1: people to always know who I am always, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and feel like they know me or they recognize me or whatever. Sometimes you just want to blend in a little bit. Um, My family comes from South Carolina and we have a a family reunion every year, every other year. We didn't get to do it this last year because of COVID, but every other year. So I go to South Carolina and for a week, you blend. I get to blend in. <laughs> and, it, and, you, and you get to exhale, kind of like that movie, Waiting to Exhale. You get to exhale for a minute yeah. and relax, and your guard doesn't have to be up. You know, and so to be able to be in a situation where you get to live in that, that's what some of our young people craved. My daughter craved going to a historically black college. She said, I just want to be in the majority one time in my life. Yeah. I want to know what that feels like. It feels good. It feels really good. It feels really good, you know, and you need to sort of to be lifted up. She was lifted up. It felt like family for her. So that's some of it. So I think it's a combination of those things. We're trying to create community with the center. We're trying to create family with the center. We're trying to give people some grounding mm-hmm. so that when they come here and they're new, they have a place to connect to. Yeah. And if I think if we can do some of that stuff, I, a friend of mine lives in California. She um, donates to the center, but she said to me, she said, if there had been a Carl Maxey Center. In Spokane, when I was growing up, I would not have left. So my hope is that we can create some of that, and we can help folks find a way to stay here longer. That's our hope.
0: So Sandy, I read something about this area in Spokane that they were looking to—I I can't recall—renovate it or create more of a a black district. Is that what I read? Yeah, the fifth.
1: So f- um, East East Central is the part of Spokane that the Carl Maxey Center is in it's called the East Central Community which is actually a huge a very huge uh, one of the largest I don't know if you call it area, district, whatever, in Spokane, but it has lots of areas. So it's got one area that's called the Perry District, which is fairly white, one area that's called the University District, which is fairly white. The part that's the most diverse is around the Fifth Avenue corridor is what we're calling it, the Fifth Avenue corridor. So the the Maxi Center sits on the Fifth Avenue corridor, the Martin Luther King Center is on Fifth Avenue, Larry's Barbershop. Fresh Soul Restaurant. There's a new African focused nonprofit on that corridor. So that's sort of the place where folks seem to be gravitating to. And part of that is because of redlining. So redlining made that area very diverse because that's where you had to live, right? Right. And so that's home, but it feels like home to us. So we're talking about it being international district, certainly a multicultural district, but um, having it be an area that feels like home for us. And it's already starting. You know, the businesses are starting. When Fresh Soul Restaurant um, started up, our board all went down on their opening day because they were having, this was before COVID, they were able to have folks come in and they had outdoor seats. So we were all, so myself and my some of my board members, we were sitting there in the outdoor seats and people were walking by and it was so much fun. It's like, oh, there's so-and-so who we haven't seen in six months or whatever. And everybody was seeing each other and talking to each other. And it was like that community feeling that you feel like when you're in, Harlem or when you're in um, places in larger cities that have larger black populations, you have sort of a center where you go hang out and you see people. It was like that. And it was just so uplifting. Mm. You know, we left there feeling so good and so um, full. And so we want to create more of that. Yes. We're talking about doing a um, Fresh Soul restaurant ourselves. A couple of the businesses around there were talking about doing a street fair there like on that 5th Avenue corridor sort of lifting that corridor up and having it be community like creating community there and I can't wait for that.
0: Oh, that's going to be great. Sandy, how I mean you mentioned earlier that you get your energy when you know deadline comes with the blacklands and you're feeling like I'm going to quit this but <laughs> yeah. you have You have inspired somebody or educated someone and changed their lives and the direction of their thinking. So other than those moments and family, do you pray for energy or, you know, are you vegan and get your (laughs) energy (laughs) (laughs) Where do I get my energy from?
1: You know, I don't know. I think, um, no, no, I'm not vegan. I do pray in my own way. Mm. I'm probably not as healthy as I should be. Um, Do I exercise? No, I need to. Um, All of those things you're supposed to do, because I'm usually at my desk working. Right. Between the center and the paper, there's not a lot of time for that. But, you know, I think and I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a pastor and we were talking about how it's not really a choice because wanting to quit. And, and he says the same thing. Wanting to quit sort of presumes you have the choice to quit something. Oh. And even though I threaten to quit every month, that sort of presumes that I feel internally like I have the choice to do that. And I really don't. Um, It just sort of feels like that's what I'm here to do. Somebody's got to do it for some reason. You know, for some reason, that's my thing. I'm good at it. Yeah. And, you know, that's it. So, you know, I mean, so it's like, you know, I don't know you know, what <laughs> keeps me going except, you know, that's what you do. It's like I hear the stories of my my family. You know, my dad joined the military when he was 15 years old because his family were sharecroppers and he had to get out of there. And the only exit out was to lie about his age and get in the Army. So yeah. that's what he did. My mom, um, the, her only escape route was to be a nurse, a registered mm-hmm. nurse. And she was in a segregated um, nursing system that did everything it could to break her, you know, so that's the stock that I come from, yeah. you know, so you do what you need to do. And so, so, that's what I have told my daughter. It's like, that's the stock that you come from where, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. You have, you figure out what that path is for you and you get on it and you keep going because we have some things that we need to accomplish in this life so that, My desire is so that my grandkids don't have to do this stuff. Oh, Sandy, that's great. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, the Native American, their philosophy is seven generations. You do what you do for seven generations behind you. Mm. And I heard that and that really spoke to my spirit. It's like I'm my dad did that for us. You know, my dad and my mom who were fighting segregation and prejudice in the South South Carolina, Mm -hmm. that's some hardcore prejudice and segregation. (laughs) They were doing that not for themselves. They were doing that for us, for their kids and for their grandkids. And they succeeded in that, you know, and my brother and I are doing the same thing for our kids and our grandkids. So so that's why it's like, you know, I don't I don't know what else it is, except that in those moments, it's like I remember that what I'm going through is nothing Nothing compared to what my parents and my grandparents
0: and my great grandparents went through. You know, so. Oh, Sandy. I like hearing this conversation because I personally feel we don't talk enough about our ancestors and what they have done yeah. to allow us to be where we are today. Exactly. And when you said, you know, it's like my mother's struggles are nothing. <laughs> I mean, no, her struggles were intense. Exactly. Mine are nothing because nothing. she. Laid the groundwork for me to have a better life. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. And then you share that. Yeah. And you yeah. share that with your kids. hmm And I, I would like more of us to share the stories of our mm-hmm. grandparents, great-grandparents, and what they did yeah. to have a better life. Yeah. We have. That's one of the valuable things about the family
1: reunion that we do. Is like I take my daughter to it so she gets to meet folks because they're not going to be around much longer. We've lost many of them. Mm-hmm. But to be able to sit at their feet and hear them tell the stories of what it was like for them growing up I think is critically important to not only just knowing history but mm-hmm. you know, sort of getting in touch with that part of us where it doesn't make any difference what we're told about who we are. That's who we are. You know, yeah. but you don't connect to that unless you have an opportunity to connect to that and mm-hmm. I think too many of us don't have that connection too many of us meaning people in the black community don't have that connection one of the things that we're doing we have some students who we were approached by Whitworth University here in Spokane and we have some students that are doing a history of black Spokane project where they are doing sort of the an overview of the history of black people in the United States but then they're Connecting that to what was happening in Spokane, ah. really powerful. And then they're they're going to create educational units for school kids. Excellent, because it's important, you know. And so it's, it comes from that same thing. Is like you know if we can't have an expectation of, of a system that's devaluing us to give us what we need to feel valuable we're going to have to start doing that ourselves yep so that's one of the things we're trying to do is to figure out all those ways we can do it ourselves and just start creating those opportunities and stop waiting for other folks to sort of figure it out they'll figure it out eventually but by the time they do
0: we're going to be way down the road (laughs) (laughs) you know having created some things that were important stories it's telling the stories that haven't been told enough exactly exactly and and the stories that we don't know you know so it isn't even about
1: the system telling the stories out there it's like even within our own circles there's stuff that
0: we don't know about and and that's our responsibility you know that is so crazy to me because in this era of constant information social media people expressing their opinions all the time we're still not telling the stories of ourselves enough exactly exactly (laughs)
1: yeah yeah, and that's and that's our responsibility. We, yeah. we have responsibility for that.
0: Yeah, just to yeah. put that out there. But, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes those stories can be painful, but they're valuable. You're listening to an interview with Sandy Williams on Traverse Talks, recorded in 2021. Williams died September 4th in a plane crash over the Puget Sound Let's get back to the interview. I wanted to ask you what it was like being a little girl in Spokane and being black.
1: Ah, um... You know, Spokane wasn't so bad, to be honest. You know, my dad was in the Army. Um, When we first moved here, we lived in military housing, which is more diverse than sort of your traditional stuff. It tends to be more diverse because a lot of people of color in the military. I grew up on McCord, did you? Yeah. Military was good life, you know. They take care of you. I was actually just sharing this with somebody. The school that we went to certainly was overwhelmingly white, but I don't have a single memory of anything negative happening there. It was it was Cheney High School, which in Spokane is sort of farm community, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it was because it was farmers kids that they were more accepting and stuff. I don't know what it was. There was certainly military folks mixed up in there and all that stuff. So my experience of, of Spokane was good as a younger person. Now, when we got older, my parents moved us into the city, so into Spokane proper. So at, prior to that, we lived in military housing, and we were supposed to go to one of the um, city high schools. My friend, a, a good friend of mine who was black, had already gone to that school. Her dad had retired and she had gone to that school and they were having some issues with race there. And so she said, don't come here. She said, you don't want to come here. And so my parents actually went to the school district and petitioned the school district for us to be able to go back out to the school that we were at. And they said, as long as we provided our own transportation, we could continue going to the school where we were at. So we never had to experience any of that because my parents were advocating on behalf of us. And in fact, she ended up leaving that school and coming back out to where we were. Oh. So I know that there were issues happening. I feel really fortunate that we were shielded from that mm-hmm. a lot in terms of growing up here. But I do remember feeling hyper visible. Like I remember like people just always knowing who you were. I remember um, sometimes I would play sports. Um, I play sports a lot. And sometimes we would go visit um, outlying areas like Clarkston and Pullman and places like that, like little places. And I remember people staring at me. I remember how uncomfortable that felt. Very seldom would anybody say anything, but a couple times people made some snide remarks. For the most part, it was just being looked at mm. like I was a weirdo, you know? Oh, that kind of look. Yeah, and so that, so I remember that, and that came from like the outside areas. But for the most part, Spokane is home, it has always felt like home, and I've always felt embraced. Spokane, even though um, the systems need some help. Mm -hmm. So I feel fortunate. I really do.
0: Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. So I grew up on McCord Air Force Base and Mm -hmm. did it dawn on me that, how do I say this? We moved from McCord to a quote, better school district because my mother, who's Asian, Mm -hmm. very much cared that I went to a high income area school district, which equals very white. exactly. So we went to Puyallup and I went from, I mean, Filipinos, Mexicans, Asians, Japanese, blacks, all the way to Puyallup and two brown dots in the audience, right? That's all there was. And not until I was an adult that I realized that the impact it had on me was I could blend. Yes. And, but I'm more comfortable with the Air Force Brats than I was with the white Puyallup people. The white Puyallup people, too, had a totally different economic status than my military family did. So, like, I did not fit because I did not have that money, but at least my skin tone allowed me to blend, so I didn't receive any problems that way. So then I come to college, and then here at WSU, get involved with the Asian communities and students here, and all of a sudden, all these questions I had as a, you know, teenager that— I didn't Mm -hmm. have others like me to bounce off on Mm -hmm. I had all these college friends who were like dude of course you think this way because your mother's Korean or Yeah. yeah that is the way you should feel because of your background and I finally felt myself exactly Yeah, it happens a lot in college. You know, um, it
1: was interesting. You know, like I said, my daughter wanted to go to a HBCU Mm -hmm. and have that experience. And so it was both positive and negative for her. It was positive because she was surrounded by black people and the faculty was black. And, you know, she had never experienced that before. And so that was it was heaven. But at the same time, she was a as a black kid who had grown up around white people her whole life. And so trying to fit in. You know, she felt like an outsider there too. So not only did she feel like an outsider in the white community, but then she also felt like an outsider in the black community. And that yeah. was really, really challenging for her to try to work through that. And I've and I've heard from a lot of people who have like left Spokane, you know, where their kids have left Spokane and gone, specifically wanted to go to a school that was more diverse and got there and, and tried to figure out how to fit in, struggled and some of them came back, you know.
0: Sandy, is this because essentially you you have this home culture, but then you're surrounded by the greater culture that impacts you? Yep. Yes. You know, this is interesting because just the other day I was chatting with some friends online about the fact that, you know, the the recent violence against Asians in America and how some of us, um, particularly us that are half, struggle with feeling conflicted, Saddened, but guilty because we yeah. have escaped this. We're safe because yes. of this color, yes. Yes. and and yet we have to we have to advocate for you know our mothers' people well, or fathers, but you know. What yes, I'm saying. but anyway. Yeah. But then we are also able to be strange ambassadors. Yes, from this white culture to this yeah. Asian side, yeah. and helping the two sides see. Well, actually, what you do is super annoying, and here's why. And, yeah, you do annoying (laughs) shit, too, and here's why.
1: (laughs) And here's why.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because in a strange way, we were doing that with our parents. Like, for me, my white dad and my Korean mother, there were many times where I was in the middle of it. Yes. And trying to be this interpreter of both worlds. Yeah. So your daughter's like that. So she's like that, even though she's
1: not biracial, but she certainly is bicultural, Yeah. I would say. And, um, and trying to figure out what does blackness mean? Do you know mm. what I'm saying? Are you, you know, because you hear you're not black enough.
0: Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And it
1: really, and so that's the internal work that we have to do. And what mm. we're planning to do, like, you know, she was, you know, cause she was pushed from our family. You have to take it. API classes, you know, you need to be working hard, and and you know, college was just sort of expected, yeah, you know, as it was for for us too, but then getting pushback from her friends
0: because she's the only black kid in the AP class, yeah, and that and then that's so sad that intelligence and that yeah education is not black. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And that and and then again, that's power. But but then but trying to
1: walk that middle ground between, Mm. you know, wanting I want my friends because if I because I want I don't want to be the only black person. Yeah, I want to connect with this group over here. But I also have my family's culture and expectations that I need to live into. So it was interesting sort of watching that process for her. I didn't have as much of that because I had the military upbringing in the family. And so my upbringing was a little bit different than hers was. Um, So I was sheltered
0: a bit. What would she say? What would she say about like what's her takeaway? What is she gonna tell her kids about this? You know, that's interesting and she's 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 engaged,
1: so she's almost at that place where she's gonna have children. So she talks about how hard it was, she talks about trying to find her way and that she still in some ways is trying to find her way. We've had, you know, in the whole You know, I call it sort of the Black Awakening, this most recent one that's that's happened. There have been others, but this most recent one, post-George Floyd. One of the most interesting things that happened because of COVID and her being trapped in her apartment, you know, we had a lot of conversations about hair, which is a big, big, big thing in the Black community is hair. And so, you know, and and who values what kind of hair. And so my daughter has always done sort of a European-esque hair. Um, whatever that looked like, whether it was straightened or whatever. But when um, COVID happened and she was sort of trapped in her apartment, she decided to let her hair go natural because nobody was going to see it. right? But it started this whole internal kind of process of figuring out who she was and on how to connect with her blackness it was fa- it was a fascinating thing for me to be on the outside sort of listening to her talking through that and discovering that it felt beautiful like she she would never allow herself to be seen in her natural hair because of all the images about what's beauty but post George Floyd and post sort of you know, cap, being captured in your, her apartment for a while, started seeing a beauty in her natural hair. And, and now she's doing sort of a combination of the two. So I think her, one of the things she said um, about that in terms of her daughter, she said, I don't ever want my daughter to feel like her natural hair is not beautiful. Yes. You know, so that's a step. That's a, that's a step. Well, it's a big one, really. Very big. Yeah. Because it's very visual it's very visual and it's very much attached to your identity. Mm-hmm. So i think um i think the conversations are going to be richer now mm. um because sort of there's been more of a um awakening. An awakening and a reflection of yeah. you know how how have these things impacted my life? I remember gosh i think she was must have been a junior maybe and one summer we did what i thought were these just beautiful twists, like natural yes. twists. And I thought she was stunningly beautiful. I did. And she kept it over the summer and everywhere she would go, she would get compliments and and then she went back to school first day. First day. It was the black girls. It was the black girls no. that came at her about why is your hair like that? Because it wasn't straight, it was it was kind of nappy twists. Mm-hmm. They were so so beautiful, I thought but so much so that by the end of the day she wanted them gone. You know, and so it's that internal, there's this internalized message that we've been given about what makes us valuable and what makes us beautiful. And and so you got to deal with that on top of all the other stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? In addition to trying to get good grades in school so you can go to college, you got to deal with that stuff, too. It's a layer. It's a layer cake. It really is. It really is. And so so, you know, I keep kind of coming back to the Carl Maxey Center. So the Carl Maxey Center specifically, I want. Want that to be a place where we address all this stuff, yeah? You know, because it's it's critically important if we want our young people to be successful that we are addressing these things that are hindering their success, and that's one of them. The whole
0: package, the whole you, exactly, exactly. I find the imagery. I uh, this is so uh, on my Pinterest board, uh-huh. <laughs> I, <laughs> on my <laughs> Pinterest feed. I. Uh, I started—okay, let me back a little bit. I'm so thankful, and I think I've mentioned this, that some—like what, what like Netflix has been starting to be very diverse in their character choosing for actors yes. and roles, yes. right? So it's like, finally, uh, you know, th- an African-American man who is totally hot that I would really have a crush on <laughs> if I was in this—and then, you know, this hot Asian guy. And yep. so then I, on my Pinterest feed, I realized inside myself that the message I got as a kid, Sandy, was— marry white. You have to marry yeah. white. Yep. A- and I don't think I need to explain to you why my mother, who's mm-hmm. Korean, would tell me to marry white. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so it was never even thought of to find any other man of any other color attractive, mm-hmm. because that just was pushed. Yeah. And uh, to the point where she even t- implored me to have children with blue eyes yes right okay so that's 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 our internal work my mom and I Mm -hmm. have to but lately on my Pinterest board I'm finding all these incredibly attractive male models of different colors and and then the women and the style and the hair and everything even the Asian women who we I have been fed as this is the this is the beautiful Korean uh, woman but when I go through and find the real ethnic Koreans yes. or ethnic yes. Japanese, they, they have different style and hair. And I yes. love it. And yeah. then uh, when we're discussing hair with your daughter, I remember m- my mother hated it when I asked her to cut me straight bangs and a bob. And mm-hmm. she would say, now, how's this for internal hate? You look too Asian. Yes. And I, yes. And I don't want you to look too Asian. Yes. Yeah,
1: And, you know, and I I was sharing, uh, I was in a a workshop one time and and there was a younger person um, who was in the workshop and she was lamenting older people, people of color, but particularly older black people and how um, she felt they weren't speaking up or Hmm. speaking out and were kind of passive. And so what I shared with her is I said, you know, uh, I get that. And I think there's some truth to that. But the reality is that these folks came through it. Through a time which we don't, because of them, that their being quiet was a survival mechanism. Yeah, Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That was survival for them. You speak up, you're dead. No. So it wasn't about somebody not liking what you had to say, or you know, making a negative comment about you on Facebook. You know, we're talking about somebody you being dead, and so I said, I think you need to look at that through the lens of that—that's a generational thing that got passed down. And when they are making those comments about us not shaking the boat, or I can't think of the phrase I'm trying to say, but you know, about Mm -hmm. about you know, keeping quiet, don't rock the boat, keep quiet, that kind of stuff. That that what that's springing from is that internalized thing that I think gets in your DNA. I agree about trying to be safe, and so I think in some ways what you're you know with your mom as well that was really that sort of ingrained in us particularly if you look at the black community the lighter the kids were the greater their odds of survival Yeah, that was survival and so it you know those are the ones that that didn't get sold away those are the ones that you know, those are the ones that got to work in the, in the big house so they, they didn't die in the fields. So they had
0: an easier life, exactly. And that's what my mom wanted have an easier life. Oh, exactly. And so, I think you know, I so I think, and again, it goes back
1: to history. I think as we're able to know our own history, share our own history, talk about where those things came from, I think we're better able to sort of um, see them and reconcile them. And then move forward and appreciate where everybody was coming from. And so so anyway, that's what I was thinking about is is that, too, is I know that for me, you know, because I'm fair skin, I have green eyes. You know, I have gotten many, many comments from people within the black community about how beautiful my eyes are and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's great and all. But I say, well, you know, you got to think about where that came from. Somebody got raped back oh, there sandy you know and so that so the legacy of that is right here oh sandy so you see beauty you meaning other people you see beauty i see you know that didn't necessarily come from i mean maybe it did somebody that got married i don't think so but you know potentially that came from you know what happened when someone was a slave too and so so all of us have to sort of be able to examine it Examine all of that and that all of that is the history and all of that
0: is a part of us moving forward, you know. Oh now I'm like examining, you know, all the ajumas and Asian aunties who would tell me how beautiful I was. Yeah. Because I didn't look too Korean, too, yeah, what that meant for them. Yes. Ugh. Yes. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The white culture is so fucking dominant. <laughs>
1: It is and it seeps in in so many ways that we don't even realize it, you know, it's just so in there for us. And in some instances, I think too painful for older folks to even examine it. It's like it's too much. You know, and I get that and I don't think it's it's always necessary, but I do think it is, you know, as we're trying to create a better society for ourselves and for for me, for my kids and my grandkids that I think it's important for us to look at and examine it and pick up that mantle. Exactly. And as much as we may criticize or or not be happy with some of the things that the older generation is doing, you know, my thing is they survived. And if it was not for that, we wouldn't be here. And so I think I think sort of lifting that up and honoring that and honoring that is really critically important as we create new ways of doing things. Because I do believe, you know, young people have great ideas and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's important. But I think they have to happen simultaneously because there would be no young people if the older people had not been able
0: to make it through however they needed to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, Sandy. Sandy. Thank you so much for your time in this really insightful conversation. Lots to think about. I mean, the more, isn't it it fun, Sandy, that when you meet and talk with other people, you learn about yourself? Yeah, it is.
1: It is. That's the best part. (laughs) It really is. Yeah.
0: Well, I hope you have a great weekend. And, you know, when things are safer, I can't wait to come down to fifth avenue it is oh, and please do Yes, see what's yes. happening yes Sounds i good. hope you
1: will We're g- we intend for it to be a joyous uh, celebratory place so <laughs> i look forward to it and it was it was a wonderful conversation thank you for making the time to speak with me i appreciate it very much
0: oh the honor was all almost- my thank you wow i can't wait to go home and tell my husband all about this <laughs> it's good stuff <laughs> the wise creator and editor of The Black Lens, Sandy Williams, who died September 4th. This podcast, Traverse Talks, is about metaphorically walking together over terrain. And sometimes it's rough and difficult and awkward, and that's what you and I need to keep doing. Be uncomfortable and vulnerable, to explore, empathize, and understand the experiences of people, to acknowledge what we don't know, so that we all may grow. Sandy Williams captured here in this podcast with her wisdom is something I hope you will share with others who also need a wise companion. Thank you for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramello.